plan of salvation. Is it about grace? Is it about faith? Is it about works? You know, if we're going to talk about the church as a house of healing, and we know that at the, at the root of that is spiritual healing, that is uh, being forgiven of our sins and regenerated, that we can serve the Lord acceptably, which is huge. This is bigger than any of us really fully understand. I don't care where you are in your maturity or Bible knowledge. We are not going to fully understand just how great a thing God has done for us until we see Him. Oh, then we're going to know. And oh boy, then we're going to know. But we can know enough now to know that what God is doing in healing us spiritually is a great thing. And so we talk about the plan of salvation. Talking about the plan of salvation is absolutely essential if we're going to, to be able to reach out to people and share with them the healing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, oh boy, all across the religious world today, the Bible-believing world, uh, the, 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 the world that claims loyalty to Jesus Christ, when you start talking about the plan of salvation... Oh, man, disagreements just, they start flooding in. And disagreements over these things, grace, faith, works. And, and in churches of Christ, heirs of the restoration movement, folks, that we want to be a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing church. We want to, thus saith the Lord, a book, chapter, and verse for everything that we do. Uh, we, that, we definitely cannot depart from that heritage of ours. That's right, and it comes from the Lord. And, and we sometimes get in positions where we say, look, we've... We're right about this, and all of you folks out there in the denominational world and non-denominational world, uh, all of you folks out there are wrong. And I'm not going to say that that's not largely true. And you'll see what I'm talking about as, as we go on through the lesson today. Be patient. Pay attention. Please, today, pay attention. But we've got to be careful because just because... Those three words, Church of Christ, are on the sign out there doesn't mean that we have the right idea sometimes about grace, faith, faith, works, or even what the plan of salvation is. Oftentimes when we talk about the plan of salvation, we say, well, the plan of salvation is five steps. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, repent of your sins, confess faith, and be baptized. But that's not really biblical. The plan of salvation is much bigger than that. That's just the, the point of receiving salvation according to the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation, that term, it encompasses all that God has done over the centuries to bring about the perfect circumstances to send His Son to die, His Son's death, burial, and resurrection that is the gospel, and that includes uh, the message of how one responds to it. That's the plan of salvation, all of it. And so I, I want us to consider a quote from one of my heroes, one of my mentors in the faith, a man that I never met because he died before I was born, but by virtue of his writings, he has become a mentor to me. And that is Brother G.C. Brewer. This comes from his autobiography. I'd be glad to make this quote available to any of you that want it. Just let me know. He says, there, there seems to be too much emphasis on a plan. Some, uh, some of us have observed this in the writing and preaching of some of our young preachers. Now, this was in 19, the mid-1950s when he wrote this. So those who were some of the young preachers in the 1950s, some of them have, have passed on now. Uh, others of them are old preachers now, okay? But that's, this was 1950s when he wrote this. So some of our young preachers, uh, we, he's observed this in some. Notice the underline. Because in becoming a Christian, hmm, let this sink in. Because in becoming a Christian, we are not 
wholly passive. Don't we sometimes overplay our role in this process? Are there things that, that a believer must do in order to be saved? Yes, there are some things a believer must do in order to be saved. But we really tend to overplay our part in the whole scenario. Brother Brewer, and that is wisdom there. That is an old man who has wrestled with the word and the faith for a lifetime. That's wisdom. That is a better way to say it. When I obeyed the gospel, God saved me, and I wasn't wholly passive in the process. You see, that's a much better way to refer to what happens to us than what we often say. Because in becoming a Christian, we are not wholly passive and helpless. Uh, subjects upon whom a given act is performed. In other words, we're not wholly, wholly passive. We are participating in some way when these acts of salvation are performed among us, upon us. But are instead, notice his words, moved by divine influence to perform an overt act of obedience. In other words, when we hear the gospel, we are moved by the influence of the Holy Spirit who is working through the word as it, is, as it is proclaimed. He works upon our souls and brings us to the point of conviction. Convicted, we are moved to perform acts of obedience. Because we are so moved, there seems to be a tendency on the part of some to think of this obedience of faith. Here he refers to that term as it's used in Romans 1 verse 5 as well as Romans 1 16. As, or chapter 16, as a, uh, as a ritual, a legalistic rite, a ceremony, notice what I've underlined here, comparable to the diverse washings or purification processes of the Mosaic Law. And I have underlined this. This is a grievous mistake. Some among us in churches of Christ have made the steps that we take in obeying the gospel and the requirements that God places upon us as baptized believers to live a certain way, a way that glorifies Christ, a, a way that, that shows that we are pursuing sanctification, the righteousness of God. Some among us preach that and communicate that in terms that are the same as the terms of the law of Moses. In other words, you must take these steps and as you do so, you are working your way into salvation and as a baptized believer, you must take these steps. In other words, you must do these works in order to, to do your part of earning your ultimate salvation. And Brother Brewer is saying rightly, that is a grievous mistake. You have terribly misunderstood the gospel plan of salvation if you think of it in those terms. All right, But his quote is not done. Not done. To put stress upon a plan and the specific uh, items and steps of that plan may lead to a wrong conclusion. Notice again the underline. We are saved by a person, not by a plan. We are saved by a Savior, not by a ceremony. Our faith is in that divine personage, that living Lord, and not in items and steps and ordinances. We are saved through faith in Christ and on account of our faith in Christ and not because of a faith in a plan. Let it sink in. That's the right way to talk about this. But we're not done. Sometimes we're led to fear that some people only have faith in faith. Or that some people only have faith in repentance, confession, and baptism. Think of it. 
faith in faith, faith in repentance, faith in confession, faith in baptism, that sort of faith can never save a soul. Our faith must be in Christ. We must trust His grace and rely upon His blood and look for and expect His healing mercy. To trust a plan is to expect to save yourself by your own works. Again, you let it sink in because that's just as right as it can be. We're not quite done. We're not quite done. That is all wrong, brethren, he writes, to trust in a plan rather than in the man. We have a Savior who saves us. We throw ourselves upon his mercy, put our case in his hands, and submit gladly and humbly to his will. That is our hope and our only hope. We're saved by grace. The fact that there are steps that we must take to enter into that grace does not change the fact that it is Jesus who saves us personally. And he saves us by means of grace, not because our steps of obedience have done anything to change our unworthiness. Because when the believer comes out of the waters of baptism, the Bible tells us in Acts 22, verse 16, that that believer's sins have been washed away. But there's nothing about that believer's behavior that has changed the fact of their unworthiness of such a blessing from God. Nothing has changed their unworthiness. Today I'm 42 years old. I, I've been living the Christian life faithfully as, adult, as an adult for 21 years. And today at age 42, I am no more worthy of the grace of my Lord than I was when I was 21 years old and I departed from the sins that had been dominating my life. No more worthy. And it wasn't me jumping through hoops that got my soul saved. I responded to the truth in certain acts of obedience because God had commanded it, because of a desire to throw myself upon the grace of God. Three questions that we're going to pursue throughout the remainder of this sermon. Three questions. Are we to be saved by grace, faith, or works, or some relationship between the three? That's question one. Question two. Is insisting those who would be saved must demonstrate their faith by acts of obedience equal to teaching works-based salvation? That's our second question. The third question of the day is this. If we teach the only saving faith is a working faith and that a non-working faith cannot save, aren't we claiming we're working our own ways to heaven to some degree? There's our third question. All right? So let's follow along and pay attention. The first passage we're going to look at together, page 1077 in your pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, the only human being that has ever lived about whom that could be said. And that's why he's the only one that ever lived worthy to be the sacrifice for human sins. Verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Notice verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray but now have returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. Peter in this passage is very clear to tell us just, just how we have come into a saved condition. Uh, just a couple of points here. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. How, how did I ever get into a, the condition that I'm in today as a faithful Christian? How did I ever get into this condition where I'm not bearing my own sins? Well, Peter answers the question. He, Jesus, bore your sins in his body on the cross. That's where they went. That's why I'm not bearing them anymore. And the passage continues. It's three things it teaches us. So that A, we could die to sin. So that B, we could live for righteousness. So that C, we could be healed. That's, that's our theme in this part of the year. So that we could be healed spiritually. Let's put that into everyday English that we can better understand. Same points, just translated into everyday English. All right? What, what does that mean? Only Christ's sacrifice can atone for our sins. There is atonement nowhere else. Forgiveness will be found nowhere else. And those three points uh, that, 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 that come from that, that are the conclusion of that fact. The cross is our only hope of A, resisting sin. You will never be able to overcome the temptations that plague you except through the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have it in your mortal frame to outwit and outlast Satan's influence in your life. He'll beat you. He will beat you. Only through the cross of Christ will you gain the victory over the temptations that, that take place in your daily life. B, the only way you can live a good life at all is through the cross of Jesus Christ. You're not a good person apart from Jesus Christ. Just let me stress that. You are not a good person until you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're a sinner and you bear your sins. Your soul is stained before the eyes of a perfect God until you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, you cannot escape the consequences of sin apart from the blood of Jesus Christ shed in his death for you on the cross. And so that's what Peter very plainly teaches us. No amount of effort on your part can ever accomplish these things. You, you can't do this any other way. You can't do it on your own. I, I would love to repeat this about 50 times, but... You don't have time for that. We're saved by grace plus nothing. Or not at all. You are saved by grace plus nothing. Or not at all. But this does not exclude conditions for receiving that grace. Not everybody in the world is saved. Even though Jesus died, at least in potential, for everyone, there are conditions that one must comply with in order to enter into the state of grace. We can say in summary of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus indeed paid it all. When we think about the sins that each one of us have committed against God, we, we, we just measure those against what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus has made is so much greater. It is so much more powerful than all of the other deeds, good or evil, that have ever been done in the history of the world so that Christ's sacrifice in the eyes of a just God is so great a work of righteousness that it outweighs all the sins that you, you and I collectively have ever committed. Jesus paid the price. As Christians, that is absolutely fundamental to our faith. And, and no matter what we do with the rest of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in our efforts to interpret it correctly and be in the truth, it has to be built upon that foundation. If I step off of that foundation and I decide that in some way or another I am making up for my own sins or sinfulness, I've fallen from grace. 
I've fallen from grace. Because the only payment God will accept is Jesus, his blood. Second passage we're going to look at today. When we think about salvation by grace, of course, it would not be a complete sermon if we didn't look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So turn your Bibles there, page 1038 in your pew Bibles, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lots of times folks like to quote verses 8 and 9 and leave verse 10 out because it starts to talk about works being some part of, of Christian life. And that's true, that's true. We need to understand the passage appropriately. Again, we are saved by grace plus nothing. When Paul says, not of works, lest anyone should boast, what he's saying is, hey, you folks who are saved, you've got nothing to brag about. Does that make sense of it? Hey, all of you saved people, you've got nothing to brag about. If you've got nothing to brag about, then there's really nothing inherently better about you than there is than anybody else, right? I mean, you can't boast unless there's something you do that's better than somebody else does, right? That's what you boast about. You boast about things about you that you've accomplished that other people may not have accomplished. You, you boast about things that you think are impressive that other people are going to be impressed with. But when Paul says you've got nothing to boast about, he says there's nothing impressive about you. In being saved, in apprehending the grace of God, you have done nothing to earn his favor in a way that would make him say, oh, well, okay, you know, that's, I, I guess I'll save you pretty good there, down there. Pretty good. It's not the way it works. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. You don't have any, any reason to boast. Through faith, not works. But being saved by grace through faith brings us into a condition. I've underlined that into a condition in which God can work through us. What, what is the operative dis difference between the unbeliever out there in the world, the, the one who, who practices false religion out there in the world, and the one who is a faithful Christian? What is the, op the difference is because God has cleansed the faithful one, his, his presence is pleased to dwell in us and to work through us. And God is not dwelling in or working through the lives of those that are outside of Christ. And so by being saved by grace, we're brought into a condition in which God can work through us. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, a passage that is often misunderstood. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Folks have looked at that passage and said, See, you've got to work your way to heaven. <laughs> and that's not what that passage is saying at all. What Paul is asking folks to do in this passage is, is come to an understanding of what your salvation means and, and then apply that meaning to your life so that your life will be changed, so that you will begin then to live in a way that corresponds to what God has done to you freely. Notice verse 13 of the same passage, Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you recognize when we interpret that passage in context, we take both verse 12 and verse 13, and we read those together to understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us, we recognize that what he is saying is that, that you as a believer, as a baptized believer, as a faithful Christian, even the good things that you do are not things you get to take credit for. You don't get to take credit even for what you're doing as a believer. 
but because it is God who works in you. God is the one who made you want to do what's right. And it is God who is the one who is working in you uh, to do the things that please Him. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul illustrates that very principle in his own self. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As a Christian, when I, when I give food to the hungry, it's not me. It's Christ who's in me. I'd have never done, I wasn't born with any kind of inclination to do kind deeds like that for other people. You know what I was born to do? Same thing you were born to do, cry until I get my way. That's what we're born to do. We cry until we get our way. And, and until we're taught better, we don't do better. Children who are not taught better don't grow up to do better, you see? And so even knowing better is not something that I was born with, not something I was accomplished, not something I can brag about. It's not something I did. God, without any control on my part, put me in a position to hear the Word of God taught and preached. My understanding of it is an act of grace. I didn't, I didn't come up in, in my youth and say, God, I realize there are a lot of things I don't know. Please, would you? I, never, I didn't do that. Even, even my understanding of what good and evil is it was given to me as an act of grace. God taught me that. I didn't teach that my, to myself. So if I then find myself as a faithful Christian going through the steps of obedience and following in the footsteps of Jesus and doing the things that God would have me to do, if I trace the origin of these works back in my life, I get to a point to where I was given something that I didn't know to ask for. Right? It is God who works in me. It's God who works in you. He's the one that has been influencing you, leading you, guiding you, so that when you obey Him, it's His work that He's giving back to Himself through you. You get to brag about that as if you did something great. None of us in this room have ever done anything great. Jesus is the only human who's ever done anything great. That's why He's our King, and that's why we humbly worship Him. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, again, concluding what we've learned here. Even the works we do aren't our own. We didn't learn to do them on our own, and we don't do them by our own power. And so our works themselves are, in fact, the grace of God. It is grace that is working in us and through us when we do anything that we ought to do. Third passage, Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And that's on page 1007 in your pew Bible if you'd like to read along. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Notice what he says in verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. <laughs> That's pretty plain, isn't it? I appreciate sometimes uh, inspired redundancy. You know, I appreciate inspired redundancy. When, when God, through his inspired writers, teaches us a principle and they say it backwards and forwards. Because sometimes in our weak mortal humanity, in our tendency to be under the influence of all kinds of worldly influences, we get thick-headed. We get thick-headed. He tells us this backwards and forwards so that we will understand what the passage says. Works-based and grace-based concept of salvation are mutually exclusive. If you are 
claiming to be saved by grace, then you cannot in the other breath say, I'm saving myself. Does that make sense? If you are claiming that you are saving yourself by some degree or another of acceptable acts of obedience, then you cannot say you're being saved by grace. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, excludes that idea in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. You cannot do or be anything to merit grace. But you can access it. You can access it. If I were to live in a house on the edge of a vast desert somewhere out in the southwest of the U.S. and sitting on my back porch one day sipping some lemonade and a haggard fella with four or five days of beard growth on his face comes stumbling out of the desert into my you know, backyard and he says, please, I haven't had a drink in three days. Please, would you give me a drink of water? If I say to him, Spigot's right there on the house, brother. Knock yourself out. Can he by osmosis drink that water? Is it just going to fly through the air into his mouth? Has he done anything to earn my water? Who's going to pay for that water? I mean, I think I'm going to pay the water bill, right? I just said freely, take a drink. But he's got to stumble over the spigot and put his mouth under it to get a drink. He can access the water. Does that mean he paid for it? Does that mean he earned it? Does it not still show that it was freely given to him? It was freely given, but but he accessed it, right? This is not so hard to get. It's not so hard to get. A quote from the great brother R.L. Whiteside. Brother Whiteside, in his commentary on the book of Romans, says, There is no grace when a man merits salvation. Notice what I've underlined. Works by which a man merits justification and commands which, must, uh, which one must obey to be saved are distinct matters. Let me interpret that, okay? Claiming that you are saving yourself by doing stuff. In other words, working your way in, into God's favor. And, on the other hand, saying you could never earn your salvation, but there are commands that you must uh, obey in order to access grace. Those are two different things. And unfortunately, across the religious world today, so many well-meaning people, so many folks that love Jesus and love the Bible have a very hard time recognizing that there's a clear line between those two things. Uh, On a local, I'm just going to say it, a local Baptist church in our area today, I'm not against Baptists, don't get me wrong, I have no hard feelings against Baptists, but a preacher at a local Baptist church just in the past couple of years preached a sermon about baptism. He got it all wrong. And in the midst of the sermon, he accused churches of Christ of teaching fatal false doctrine on this subject. What does he mean by that? It means we're going to hell for what we teach about baptism. That was what he said. In this generation, I can show you the post online. So can Keith, by the way. He's the one who showed it to me. All right? Why? The well-meaning preacher. I mean him no harm. I know this preacher with all of his heart is intending to serve Jesus and serve him righteously. I know that he means to do that. I'm not his judge. I'm not his judge. But he is wrong, wrong, wrong. And he has woefully, woefully misrepresented what we preach and teach. Why? Because he doesn't recognize that line that Brother R.L. Whiteside is talking about. Because he, he can't understand that God giving you some commands, saying 
in a sense, well, come right over here to the faucet and drink. Drink your fill. He can't somehow say that that's, that's not earning it. It's just not earning it. You see, I get frustrated sometimes, brothers and sisters. I mean, God help me. Be patient with me. I get frustrated sometimes because this is not that difficult. It's really not that difficult. If I give you a coupon, all right, tired old illustration, I'm going to use it anyway. If I give you a coupon for a free meal at your favorite restaurant in town, and you go down and you, you turn in that coupon and say, I'd like my free meal, please. Is it not free? It's free. Can I sit at home on my couch with this coupon and say, oh, I've got a free meal. <laughs> this is, isn't this great? Look at the picture of it there. That's not very tasty. you got to access it, man. doesn't change the fact that it's free. Going down and turning in the coupon doesn't mean that you paid for it. It doesn't mean it's no longer free. So, so in what, what Brother Whiteside is saying, just because there are some commands that you have to obey in order to be saved doesn't change the fact of your unworthiness. It doesn't change the fact that God gave the salvation as a gift. I know I'm belaboring this point, but I want to make sure every soul in this auditorium this morning can recognize the difference because it's easy. It's clear as a bell. And the Bible teaches us this real simple difference between these two things throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Please don't leave this building today misunderstanding this principle. It is so vital to preaching the gospel in all of its truth. To continue his quote, it is unfortunate that many cannot or will not see this distinction. Because of this, they conclude that a sinner must do nothing in order to be saved. But a man has no real understanding of either works or grace if he thinks that a sinner's complying with the terms of salvation causes him to merit it. Many things are of grace and are yet conditional. Is anyone so simple as to think that Naaman's healing from leprosy was any less a matter of grace because he had to dip seven times in the Jordan River? Is any so blind that he cannot see that Jesus giving sight to the man born blind was any less of grace because he was required to wash in the pool of Siloam? See how much sense that makes? That's right, man. You've got to recognize it. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, page 1073 in your Bible. Now, James chapter 2 is, again, the passage that is very often misunderstood. Please keep your attention with me because this is vital, vital stuff. James 2, verses 18 through 26. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? This is sarcasm, by the way. Bible writers, by the Holy Spirit, knew how to be sarcastic, okay? This is kind sarcasm, not unkind sarcasm. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Verse 22 is a key. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works what? Was made perfect. This passage is not about works, it's about faith. You've got to understand that in order not to miss James's point. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. 
Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Uh, James, the, the central passage, the central thought of this text is this question you see on the top of your screen. Can that faith save him? James is not arguing the question of, of salvation by grace through faith. What Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, James heartily agrees with. He is not in any way contradicting what the Apostle Paul wrote about the basis of our salvation. Nor is he in this context saying that any of us are going to work our way to heaven. That's not the point of James chapter 2. He's asking what kind of faith can save a man. What kind of faith can save a woman. Can a faith that has no activity save a person? That's a dead faith, he says. There are two dimensions of false faith that James outlines in this context. Number one, a so-called faith that opposes or neglects works. That is a false faith. You can't be saved by that kind of faith. The second kind of false faith is so-called faith that is mere belief in doctrine. The demons believe in the doctrine about Jesus Christ, but they're not saved. So human beings all across the world, there are many that believe in the doctrine about Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, was buried, and rose the third day. There are many folks that believe the Bible is the Word of God, but they do not respond with activity suitable to one who believes those truths. And therefore, they are not saved because of a certain kind of faith that saves. i got a quote here. Now, this is a quote not from a member of our fellowship, not from a member of a church of Christ. This guy's a Presbyterian, a Calvinist Presbyterian. That's why I like this quote so much, okay? Listen to what he has to say. The second half of James 2.18 is the key to understanding James' point. Show me, James says, and I will show you. Notice what I've underlined, his words. One cannot show faith by any means other than works, and thus faith and works cannot be separated. All right, that's not all. Let's keep going. That faith is completed by works, verse 22, which we just read, is to say that it comes to its fruition. Just as sin, when completed, brings forth death, James has already said that in chapter 1, verse 15. So faith finds its completion in works. James's use of the word is quite similar. Notice now, this is good, okay? Pay attention to this. James's use of the word is quite similar to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Clearly, 1 John is not claiming that our love makes God's love perfect in the sense of flawless. For God's love is always flawless. But our love does bring God's love uh, in us to its fruition. Similarly, works do not make faith flawless. They bring faith to its proper completion. What does that mean? I'm going to translate that for you again because that's right. We must demonstrate faith by obedience to be saved. We must demonstrate faith by obedience to be saved. That is a fact. It is what the Bible teaches throughout. But since none of our works of obedience are perfect, our faith 
isn't perfect either. All that's left is to conclude God saves people who imperfectly demonstrate imperfect faith. God saves people who imperfectly demonstrate imperfect faith by means of His perfect grace. We're saved by grace. James chapter 2 affirms that while telling us that we should not make the mistake of thinking that we don't have to do anything in order to access the grace of God. If you have been taught a system of faith that says, well, you can absolutely do nothing, you can do nothing to enter into a saved condition, oh, and then the next breath the preacher says, now I want you to pray this prayer. You see, you can't do anything to, to enter into the grace of God, but now please do this. So, and the hypocrisy, just the sheer hypocrisy of that. I'm going to challenge you, I don't know where all of you come from in your faith backgrounds, but if you heard the gospel preached and it pricked you in the heart, I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit was working in that process. But if then you were told that you were going to ask the Lord into your heart through a sinner's prayer or something like that, I just want to challenge you, get your Bible out from Matthew chapter 1 to Revelation 22 and find me book, chapter, and verse for that practice. Because you will not find it anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from the apostles. There is no book of the Bible that teaches you that you're just going to ask the Lord into your heart by means of a sinner's prayer. It is false doctrine. It is plain, downright false doctrine. And yet, folks criticize us and tell us just because we're affirming. You, you know, if you've been paying attention this morning, it's not about me. I'm not so smart. I haven't done anything except just bring, bring these passages from the Word of God to your attention. Put them up on the screen where you can see them. Throw in a couple of quotes from some good teachers there to help clarify. That's all we've done. You've seen what the Bible says. How dare someone tell us we're going to hell for teaching exactly what the Bible says one ought to do. I get a little bit indignant about it. I'm sorry. Faith versus works. Neither in obtaining nor maintaining salvation is it a matter of earning it, because that is impossible. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have reason to be very encouraged. I was baptized into Christ. Did I fully understand what that meant? No. When I was baptized, I didn't fully understand what that meant. Did God forgive me anyway? <laughs> he sure did. Man, it was imperfect faith. That, that it was obeying imperfectly. There was nothing about what I did to become a Christian that could any way merit God looking down on me and saying, that was impressive, Josh. I have to give it to you. No, sir. When I obeyed the gospel, it was not impressive. The only thing that was impressive about it was what it meant. Because of what Jesus did for me, that was impressive. And that's why I obeyed those steps. Those of you that have done likewise, same thing, same thing for you. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it's put in real clear terms. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I wish that I could say to you that I have done very many things in my life that were perfectly righteous. Wish that I could say that. Even when I get up and preach a sermon, you know, I cannot escape the fact that I hope you all think I did a good job. So in part, my, my motives are compromised every week, every week. It's not that I, my first priority is not to please God and to teach his truth. It is. But there's some of me in here too. There's some of me and I want my needs met as well. It's a tough struggle. What does that mean? Even this obedience is imperfect. Even this obedience is not worth the blood of Jesus Christ. Even this obedience does not merit the grace and the glory of God. Nothing you have ever done in your life 
was fully and wholeheartedly innocent. Even in the things that we do right, we're struggling against our own desire for self-glorification and to be fulfilled by doing things that make us feel good and right. There's nothing that we do before God that is good enough. Can we get that through our heads? But at the same time, brothers and sisters, there are some things that we got to do, imperfect or not, if we want to enter into a saved condition. And do not be backed into a corner by folks preaching false views of grace that don't recognize the clear teaching of Scripture and be embarrassed to say that you must obey the steps that God has given us in the plan of salvation to be saved. Do not be backed into a corner. Do not allow someone to tell you, you're teaching works-based salvation, and therefore you're going to hell. It's not what we're doing. It's not what we've ever done. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. So also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you done that yet? <laughs> be honest. Not me. When you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty if you were to live a perfect life, you know what you would accomplish? Nothing impressive. Just what you ought to do. Doesn't that put things in perspective? It does for me. Final quote from my beloved brother G.C. Brewer. Doesn't, his quote previous doesn't mean he didn't believe in the plan of salvation. It just meant folks were looking at it the wrong way. Listen to what he says. By faith, we lay hold upon Christ. This faith acts, but it is still faith. Faith is not supplemented by baptism, but faith is expressed, actualized, and made perfect by baptism in the same sense that James was talking about in James chapter 2, verse 22. This baptism, the only overt act in conversion, is faith demonstrated. Faith reaching out for Christ. Faith taking hold of the outstretched hand of mercy. That's what it is. That's what baptism means. That's what we're doing when we're plunged before those waves. So that's why 1 Peter 3.21 says what it says. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Don't let anybody tell you baptism doesn't save you. There are folks that might tell you wrongly how baptism saves you but don't let somebody say baptism does not save you last time somebody interjected a not into one of the commands of the lord go read genesis 3 all right a lot of bad stuff happened baptism now saves you not the removal of the dirt from the flesh but an appeal to god for a good conscience in other words god i'm a sinner please cleanse my conscience that's what baptism is that's what it says. That's what we're doing when we submit to baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid it all. Some of you this morning need to respond. You need to come to the water faucet and you need to drink freely, but you've got to come. You want to be saved by grace? You know you can't earn it. You cannot earn it, but you must access it. You must access it with a faith that has come to life in your deeds and your actions and your works, sure. Use the word works if you want to. Not works of merit, whereby somehow you've changed your deserving status. That's not it. 
But if you want to receive the grace of God, if you want to benefit from the fact that Christ paid it all, that he died for you, was buried, and rose for your justification, that you might have the hope of eternal life and resurrection day forward, you've got to access that grace. And the only way to do it is to say, I believe, and I will turn from following my own ways and give my ways to God. And I'm going to seal the deal by being baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. Do you need to respond? Do you need the prayers of the church? Come as we stand and sing.